Welcome to the Employee of the Month show. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And on this episode, I sat down with the stand-up comedian, Jess Wood. She's also a storyteller, memoirist, and actor. Uh, this episode is not safe for work. It is not kosher, so I strongly recommend you put your headphones on, almost as strongly as I recommend listening to this episode. She is a phenomenon. Our interview took place at the Writers Guild in New York, and without further ado, here it is. <laughs> okay, I'm here with Jess Wood. Hey! <laughs> I, was, I was telling two personal stories, and I got too, too embarrassed. Um, Jess is a phenomenal stand-up storyteller, actress, and now author. Thank you. Um, I want to start at the beginning because I feel like your storytelling and stand-up and book yes. all encompass your life. Yes, 100%. And I only know some things because you know you only know what you see on stage, which is so funny, and you don't know which is what is real and what is not real. And Yeah. You grew up in... I, I really want to hear your whole life story. Okay. <laughs> all right. I was born a poor black child. I am... Um, I was raised in Topanga Canyon, which is a hippie con- like My cousins a- live there. Oh, they do. Yeah. So it's still hippie. Like they they didn't pro- they haven't upped the dates in it, Topanga. Topanga Canyon's in California. It's one of yes. the most beautiful places, right before Malibu and Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And it's the weirdest thing because it is truly hippy dippy, and at yeah. the same time, like incredibly wealthy. Oddly enough, at the yes, they've a lot of musicians and actors and yeah. people have come to that and settled in there because it does look like I mean it's untouched really. The the beauty is gorgeous. I, mean, I go there every time I bamboo go to bamboo and and beautiful tree oak trees and I mean it's gorgeous. It is gorgeous. Hiking there is like you feel like I'm in another country. Or yeah, like that. Definitely, definitely, and it's the weather is amazing. I mean the whole thing. But in the seventies, the city built a bunch of houses in this ravine at the bottom of Topanga Canyon off of the Pacific Coast Highway. So if you were on Pacific Coast Highway headed to Malibu and the turn comes for Topanga, there were a little row of mailboxes on the side of uh, Topanga Canyon that you could turn down into, and it was a dirt road. And that was where we lived, was down this dirt road. And they had lined, the city had built these little shitty houses for people that didn't have any money. And I think my mom rented it for like three fifty or something a month. I think it was three fifty or 400 bucks. And what, 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 what was she an actress? Or? She was an actress, my okay. mom, yeah, my whole, my whole upbringing. And so we were on welfare most of the time, you know. I love, really, she was an actress, so we were on welfare. Because really, I mean, <laughs> come on, let's be honest about this shit. It's not, you know, it doesn't pan out for everybody, Katie. So, and my poor mom, I mean, she was a fucking crazy person. I mean, she, you know, just to give you a a small peek into her stuff, she was a a Jew from Queens who moved to L.A. and got a nose job, changed her name before I was born. So when I was born, I had no idea I was Jewish. I had no idea. You could be my cousin. Oh, I, God, I hope. That would be fucking amazing. I would love to have you in my family. My family's a bunch of lunatics. But... Yours as well. You so you we may could be all, a cousin. I might just, might just you be. You may already we be. We do have kind of the same <laughs> smile. Uh, so she raised me with no underpants. Um, she told me she didn't believe in them in underpants. What which, do they do? They all uh, do I, Yeah. Like it doesn't, your coos doesn't breathe. That was kind of a quote that she had for a lot of my life. She also raised me a vegan, but we were on welfare. So it's not a smart idea. You know, the government's giving free meat and free cheese away. And we don't eat meat or cheese. So, as my mom said, uh, do you know what that'll do to your colon, Jesse? And I'm like, no, I'm four. I, I, I just know that cheese is a snack food, and my pals have it. I'd like a piece of cheese. Oh, my God, if you could see Katie's face right now. 
Hopefully, I'm not bringing down the crowd. <laughs> Come on, kids, all's well. So everybody was really naked all the time, all the time naked, but not a commune. They they totally weren't organized or anything. Right. Know? It's more like Sally. And is it like a suburban? neighbor configuration in that like each it's nuclear families but they're like hey but they're naked or no mm, no kind of well in a, in a sense are there were other clothes besides underwear or, or just nothing sure I mean you know a lot of men look like Daffy Duck you know or Don, <laughs> not Daffy but Donald right just a shirt no pants um but the ladies always had like a summer dress on with no bra or underpants or, you know, I asked recently about my potty training because I was, because writing, you know, I'm writing this yes, book and I, I, yeah, and I keep bringing, all these things keep coming up for me and I thought, let me ask what my potty training was like. And they actually told me, potty training? No, no, no. You shat on the lawn like an animal. And <laughs> I was like, wait a second. But you know what? That makes sense. Because I really can go to the bathroom anywhere. You know, there are those I'm girls. So jealous. Yeah. Well, are you like one of those girls that is like, I can't poo. Yeah. Like in public. I can't even talk about it right now. It's really? Yeah. Are you uncomfortable? You're you're yeah, shifting a little in your seat. Me, I'm just like, ah, shit to the wind. Like I have no issues. Like outhouses, fucking lawns. I'm like, oh, I'm fine. I'm great. I'm like the best Jew ever too, because I talk about it. You know, yeah, I knew great. there was something Jewish about me when I was little, because talking was about a lot I think, of poop I think talk. The fact that like we're just starting the interview and it's like come up like 20 seconds in. I yeah, think you're definitely Jewish. It's true, like, right? To be able to talk about your colon. With, I, I think within three seconds is, is probably the biggest indicator. It really think. is. Yeah. And I've been dating a guy now for a very long time, and Nine he was years. a wasp for a very long time. That also is probably an indicator he, of dangerous that you're dating a wasp. Exactly. Yeah. On both ends, right? The men and the women. But he now talks poop, and I love it. I mean, I love in the, our mornings together because it's all poo. It's just delightful for me. So what, like, when you're writing this memoir, yeah, so, does, does it... Is it traumatizing reliving stuff? Yes, yes, for sure. It took me, it's been taking me a longer time, I believe, because some stuff comes up for me and I know, oh my God, I didn't ever cry about this. So I, I'll have to cry for a little bit and then maybe take a few days off because it's pretty heavy duty. Now, the, the book is not a sad book. It's got no, my voice. It's honest. Yeah. Which is going to be funny and, and, and dark and, yeah. and thoughtful. It's every, I mean, to me, Thanks. The Sopranos is a comedy. Yes. Yes. Like, you know, real life yes. and its grittiest is very funny because it's absurd. Exactly. I miss those guys. A Breaking Bad, another yes. family that I love, and the yes. Sons of Anarchy, a family that I love, I relate to yeah. a lot. Mm-hmm. So your mom was an actress. Did, did your dad live with you guys? No. And oddly enough, now this was a guy, they were never married. They never really liked each other, um, as far as I could tell. There was a lot of violence uh, regarding their, their relationship. And recently, I'm talking about less than a year ago my mother just told me that she's that that guy isn't my dad oh how the fuck what maury show i'm gonna get my next tv credit off maury i'm like let's I know. go i feel, I feel like I, I feel like you could be like that's unbelievable isn't that crazy did she tell you who your dad is she said it was this guy in la okay now get this katie this guy he's been one she goes well i can't really say that he'd give any dna I said, why not, Mom? Let's get a test. Let's yeah. go, you know. Well, he's been wanted by the FBI for the last 35 years. I said, since I'm a, wait, okay. But you knew him? Did you know him this whole time? She said, well, I knew him and I, I know him, but we weren't in contact. Get this, though. He would call the guy who was acting as my dad. This guy would call my the guy acting as my dad at, and hire him for, like, 
construction jobs or art building or like the guy who I thought was my dad my whole life he's never really had a job he's one of those cute guitar playing guys you know like hey ladies what's happening you know he plays yes. guitar and he like builds you a shelf and you fuck him you know and you're like yes. oh my god he's so hot and, and then like 30 years later you're like oh my god this fucking deadbeat you know this fucking guy usually I know he's a deadbeat but I still like do you know what I mean like usually I know right away that he's a deadbeat but I just like but he's so cute he's so cute and, and he like, plays like a guitar. I love your smile. Jess. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so these ladies get you know under his spell. Anyhow, the guy who's apparently my real dad would hire him for jobs because I know he must have known we we're all on welfare. I mean, what the fuck? So I said to my mom, "Wait, this guy wanted by the FBI? Why? Oh, why is a huge drug dealer? Okay. Apparently, this guy was rich. Is rich. This guy. Can we?" Let's make sure he's my dad. Let's get some money. I don't know. I hate to sound like a freak, but can I get a little something? Can I? First of all, I'd like closure. That's the first thing that yeah, I'd like. Absolutely. Who the hell is my papa? Let's figure this out. Now, I go to my maybe daddy. That's what I'm calling the guy. <laughs> That's what I'm calling the guy who I think might be. I left you off. Thank you. My Sorry to hurt daddy. anyone's ears at home. I am. <laughs> By the way, if you hear the trucks going across, those are just mafia trucks. No, we're in the, the Writers Guild um, taping employee of the month here, and I'm here with Jess Wood, who is um, telling us about what's going to be in her memoir, and it's just fascinating. It's also part of her stand-up and storytelling, so you should please go see her on stage. She performs all over the country and also has her own podcast. Um, but, <laughs> uh, so, Okay, so your maybe daddy. My maybe daddy. I was called, he violent with you guys with you guys also? He was a perver. He was a pervo deadbeat guy. And I'm an only child, so I was kind of just tossed back and forth to whomever had a little money at the time, whomever, whomever had, you know, a little more stable environment. And um, You mean you didn't always live with your mom? No. Uh-uh. I was dropped off back and forth all the time because my mom wanted to be an actor, so having this kid was kind of in the way. So a few years into it, she's like, eh, let me drop you off with this guy who you don't really know, who I don't really know, but we were fucking, so let's just drop him off and call him. I have his last name. They gave me his last name. Wood, the artist, the Mm -hmm. guitarist. The guitarist guy. So anyhow, (laughs) so I call him recently, and I ask him, hey, would you mind taking a DNA test? Because my mom just said that she's not sure if if you're my my dad. dad. And he, okay, I was thinking maybe he'd show up for me on this, but he goes off. He goes, Jess, do you want a fucking list of all the men your mother was fucking while we were together? And I was, and I paused for a second, and I'm trying to stay focused here because this is a DNA test that I need. And I said to him, well, yes, I would like a list, but can you just swab your cheek for me and I'm going to send you this DNA test. Please, just swab for me. And he, he doesn't want to swab for me. I bought it, I sent it to him, and he's not swabbing it up. Now, the guy who's wanted by the FBI is not going to swab it up either because he's wanted by the FBI. So he's not going to put his DNA into a lab or anything like that. So I don't know. Really, I kind of have to just shut it down. Or maybe I'll go to L.A., I'll meet the guy who's supposed to be my real dad. Yeah. And they say sometimes, haven't they said, like, if you meet the person who, you know, you automatically know it's them once you see them or hug them or feel... Because I never felt anything from the maybe daddy. I never... It was never real cool with well, us. Well, ex- uh, yeah, and he was perverted? And he you? was a weirdo, yeah. He was a touchy weirdo, yeah. 
So we don't like that. Even though, you know, in the 70s it was called free love, Katie. So just <laughs> stop looking so horrified. <laughs> All right. It's not molestation. Something they came up with after that. <laughs> I'm just going to stick with molestation. It's my turn. Oh, my the British naked people. Upbringing. Um, yeah. I, which, and I experienced all of this, not to the, your extremes by any by any account. Well, but, I hope not. But no, no, definitely. But <laughs> I, I don't just wish this I, on my worst enemy. It, it's coming from, from a place of empathy and, and knowledge. Thanks, Tom. Um, so I think you should definitely confront him. Yes, right? I do too. I think I need to go to Los Angeles and talk to this guy and just meet him at least. Because I asked my mom what he looks like. Because the guy, my maybe daddy... He doesn't look anything like me. He's like this tall, lanky, black-haired, black-eyed guy. He doesn't look anything like me. Then I said, what does this guy look like, the guy on the lamb? And my mom says, oh, he's got uh, strawberry blonde hair, and he's got green eyes and dimples. Okay. That's how I look. That's exactly how you look. Yeah. Your gorgeous green oh, eyes God and your dimples. How, how do you um, write about this? I mean, your life is so fascinating, and I'm, like, <laughs> so excited for the book, but, like, I... I can't believe it's not already, like, out yet. But how, how do you write about this? This is something that was came up at a perfect moment because I'm finishing the book. Like, we've been back and forth on this and how long that it's taken and the edits that I've needed to do and all this. Because, look, as I said to my agent, my literary agent, I said, look... When, when she told me, oh, we have some houses that are interested in your book, I Jessica. I should be so lucky. Thank you. But she said to me, oh, it needs, the, what they need from you is they need you to make it into a linear piece. They need you to make it, they don't want short stories. They don't want essays about your huh. life. They want it to have a narrative arc. Now, narrative arc to me gets me very defensive. Well, it, it's also very hard, right? Like, how, oh. do you, how do you create a false arc out of this complex life? Oh. You're telling me. I wish I had you to send that email back. <laughs> I just got very defensive and said, did you read my memoir? I mean, my God, it's like a fucking drug addict and ex-prostitute. I mean, there's so you many. You were a prostitute. I was. When I was a teenager, when I was 14, I, I went to a, I had one client that I went and saw well, who this was is, set up. This is a job about, I was a show about jobs, work, and culture. So oh, let's talk about your first job. Let's talk about it, baby. <laughs> was that your first job? Uh, it was probably around that time that I started working a lot because I, well, you know, work begins work. <laughs> um, I was doing that after school. After school, I, unfortunately, my girlfriend, who uh, I was doing it with, because we were kind of like a tag team for this man, she's passed away when we were, she didn't have a good life. Her grandmother set up the, pro- the prostitution for us. So here are a couple... That's like Richard Pryor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have a lot in common. He's like my hero. I mean, Richard Pryor, Mae West... If I could just be the kid of them. I think you, know. you are. Yeah. <laughs> I love you. Let's make that happen, <laughs> shall we, Katie? <laughs> I mean, so wait, so you're living in Topanga. You're not living with your mom. Sometimes you are, sometimes. Well, now, we got flooded out of Topanga when I was nine. So we oh, lost wow. everything. Oh, wow. And we had to live in motel rooms for a long time. And, okay. And then by the time this was happening was in seventh, eighth grade, I lived in a hotel room with my mom in Santa Monica, and I was going to junior high school in Santa Monica. Which junior high? Lincoln. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh God. I went to Lincoln, and I went to Smash, and I went to a place called Colin McEwen. How come you went to so many schools? Because I was bad. Okay. <laughs> and I wasn't bad, like, oh, my God, she's coming and, like, bringing knives to school or anything like that. I was just, I couldn't shut the fuck up. And I, and I was constantly talking. And I was high a lot. You know, I was fucked up a lot. I smoked a lot of PCP during that what time. What is that exactly, PCP? It's elephant tranquilizer. 
Oh my God. I know. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. I mean, if you go on my Facebook page, there are some really fun photos that a few of my Chola friends have forwarded to me that are just. I mean, it's a real amazing shit to look at because you know I'm just totally dusted in these shots, and I'm there's one where I'm throwing up a gang sign like my life just depends on it, you know, it's just like oh god, this is my gang sign, and um, oh the storytelling show actually, Katie, that I did called Urban Myth, yes, with with, with DC Benny. that got picked up for distribution, so you can go on Netflix and you can see. I'm very excited. So the story that I tell in the Urban Myths show is all about hanging out with the Cholos. Is this where you, your crinoline skirt, yes. you, like, you like <laughs> took it off at some yes. party or something like that? exactly. Now, do you, when you sit down to write, because you're so funny and such a good storyteller, Thank like, you. did you record yourself telling the stories and then write them down verbatim? How did, does that make sense? Like, how did you write it out because you're such a verbal storyteller? Thank That's you. Not That's a, it's, no, that was a really good question. I thought um, I. What happens with me is I'm a real improviser. Mm-hmm. So I'll have an idea of a story I want to tell, and then I'll actually flesh it out on stage, and I'll try to record it. But I have to be honest, I'm pretty lazy about recording. So what I'll do is once I get off stage, I'll write down as much as possible freehand mm-hmm. uh, writing, not into the computer or the phone, and that tends to pull me more because you know they say the writing it comes out of your heart and into your hand and through your hand I always believed in that that if I just allowed myself to be open to the story oh really yes yeah it's very artist's way Julia Cameron you know (laughs) the babbling brook will be your guide um yeah it's kind of a it's kind of a spiritual thing I guess but I really have always felt like that especially with all the traumas that I've been through and, and the ability to write them out because I'm very lucky. I'm one of only a handful of kids that survived where I come from. Like w- the gangs that I hung out with, the the kids that I hung out with even just in Hollywood when I lived as a kid out there, because I was back and forth with my mom and my dad, um, or my maybe daddy, I, I experienced two different parts of L.A., and a lot of those were people that were against one another, like gangs that would fight. Where did he live? He lived in Hollywood with okay. his wife. Um, he married a lady who had a job and a car, so we kind of psyched out on that. We're like, hell yeah, Dad. So he really took you as your as his own. Yeah. Yeah, he did. That's why I don't understand why he can't claim me now. I think his ego is freaked out that if, if I don't come up as his, that it's going to be a big, you know, maybe I owe him money or something. You know, I always complained he was a deadbeat, and yet, shit, I might have to send him some cash. <laughs> or at least his wife. His wife really put out the money because he didn't have a, a job, you know. Was she loving to you? She was as much as she could be, as much as she could be. Okay. She's a pretty cold gal, but okay. she was, you know, she was the only one that worked in my whole, you know, the adults that I knew. My mom had a gig on Hill Street Blues when I was a little girl. Oh, wow. She was a recurring character, and that was a great, that was a great time. That's actually how I got my SAG card, because I was a punk rocker. It was at the same time, prostituting, cholo, smoking PCP, going to fucking this old guy, and then I'd go, like, on certain days, uh, my mom would be like, oh, they have a kid, you know, on set today. Do you want to come and be an extra? So I would be, because I always had different colored hair because I was punk rocker and weirdo. I'd be like, hell yeah. So I'd go get arrested in the background on Hill Street Blues. You know, I was 13, 14 years old in the background. <laughs> was, so there's all these different things happening. And my mom 
was very out of it, obviously, most of the time. And she doesn't really like white people. So whenever I would bring the Mexican kids over to the hotel room, she really liked it. Like, she was always like, oh, spider. So is your mom a hippie, too? You know, like, no, dude, this is a fucking gang member in your, in your hotel room, you know. And my, my friends were like, your, your mom is so funny. She's hilarious. I'm like, yeah, she's pretty funny. <laughs> so it was an adventure. I mean, there's a lot of stories, a lot of stories. I got arrested a couple times as a kid. I mean, it's all, since I've been a grown-up, I've been very mellow. Yeah. yeah. No, I imagine anything yeah. is mellow compared to that. I mean, basically, you could be uh, on coke right now, and that would be more mellow. You know I, what? Know. I mean, there's, there's nothing you could do right now that, that wouldn't be mellow in comparison. You could it's be true. in space, <laughs> naked, on cocaine. <laughs> And With that a would, monkey that spoke to me. Yeah, practicing salsa together, and that would still be more down to earth than whatever went on in this childhood. Wait, so, so yeah. when, how did you, so prostitution, was that your, instead of, you know, ice cream scooping, was that your first job next to the next to being an extra? Yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. And how did you fall into mm-hmm. that uh, line of work? Well, the ice cream or the prostitution? Prostitution. It oh, were was, you also an ice cream scooper? I was. You're, oh. You were joking with me, <laughs> yes. but I actually was scooping yogurt. At the, what was yogurt? I was, I was healthier than that. It was Santa Monica, Katie. Come on. Uh, the 80s. We were very healthy in the 80s. Um, he, oh, gosh. It, how did I get into it? Her grandmother, my friend's grandmother, was set up this man who was a Beverly Hills furrier. And he was old. I mean, old, like a senior person. And uh, we would show up couple times a week at like clockwork after school I would take the bus I was on the bus constantly in Los Angeles I mean the, the RTD the rapid transit district yeah I, I, I or mean the I, rough tough yeah. and dangerous as Ice Cube would like to refer to it as that's right I love Ice Cube <laughs> I like Ice Cube too thanks <laughs> keep it real <laughs> wait so you would so how I, but I'm so so you meet this furrier mm-hmm. how did you meet him Scooping we through my friends no my oh, friend's grandmother mm-hmm and so your friend's grandmother pimped you guys out to him. Yes. And I don't know, you know, as I think about it as a grown-up, I don't know how much money she must have got. She must have made a nice little bunch of cash for having a couple 14-year-olds come to this man's place, right? But did you we know got, what was going on? Did he? Did she say, you're going to go over there and have sex with him? Uh, in a matter of speaking, I mean, it was kind of like, you're going to go have keep company. You're going to go keep them company. That's I remember that's how she phrased it. It was like, you're going to go keep uh, company, my friend Sydney. You're going to go keep them company. And so we're like, all right. But at 14, by the time I was 14, like I said, I'd already been smoking PCP. I'd been getting drunk. I'd done a bunch of acid. I was just completely fucked up all the time. So... Really, I would get drunk before going to see Sydney and having to suck his dick, and it wasn't as bad because I had drank a bunch of Jack Daniels, you know, before I went up there, and so it would just kind of make it. And plus, I used humor my whole life to get out of these. Did he give you money? Yeah, he gave us like $20, you know, which we thought, fuck yeah, I'm going to go get a 40. I mean, yeah. I don't know what I wanted to go get, a dime bag of weed and a 40 ounce of beer and a ticket to the movies. I mean, I don't know. Would you get a lot. You, so you were both clients at the same time? Yeah, we would go together. Okay. Yeah. And he'd ask us to bring other girls. I remember once bringing another girl that I got out of junior high who had really big titties, and I thought, see, I brought you some big titties, like, because we didn't have the biggest titties. So I was like, check out these titties. I think I got an extra 10 bucks for that, like a finder's fee. I mean, it was wrong, you know. It's very wrong to do this to How the How long children. did you do this? A uh, couple years. A couple years. And then when did you stop and why did you stop? He stopped it. I remember it was them. It was them that stopped it. So I don't know what had happened. But I would, like I said, I moved around so much 
where I would be living at the beach with my mom in the hotel. Then I was living in Hollywood with um, my dad and his wife. So there were a couple different locations that I would come from and or maybe not be available. I don't know. I was so constantly moving schools and moving houses and it was a constant flux of, you know, shit. And so then how did you, how, so what was the next job after prostitution? Next job? Well, I was scooping yogurt scooping at the time. Scooping yogurt. I, w- the I had to drop out of school because my mom moved out when I was 16. My mom moved in with her boyfriend and she told me, and we lived in a hotel together, and she told me, Oh, Jesse, don't worry. I left my juicer here. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess because your juicer's here, you're still kind of here, you know? You're... So she abandoned you. So she there. split. Yeah. And so she went and lived with this guy. So I, I quit school and I got two jobs selling bikinis at Diane's Bikinis on um, uh, Lincoln and then doing the scooping of the ice cream or the yogurt stuff. So those are my jobs then. And that was like, kind of felt like a dead end, you know? Huh. I kind of felt like, I mean, I'm 16, and I'm like, fuck, what am I doing, you know? Re- you immediately you I know. immediately knew. Yeah. So still hanging out with the gang members, and they were dying. Like, everyone was dying. and they going to shot? jail, yeah. Okay, and and ODing and, and stuff. ODing. Okay. One of my girlfriends was in a car um, outrunning the police, and she and her boyfriend, he was driving, and they drove off the Palisades cliff like it was, you know, a car chase crash thing and so she died in the car i had boyfriends die all the time like everyone was fucking dying and i was 14 15 16 years old and so it was so it felt so tragic you know to be so young and have so many people lose so many people and it felt like there was no other way to live um but because my mom was from new york and I knew she was from New York. And I had been to New York when I was a little girl. And I fucking loved New York. I was like, that's where I belong. Fuck this L.A. shit. Everybody's dying. Everybody wants to be rich and white and 19. Interesting. I don't want to fucking deal with this. So I knew when I was a little girl, I got to go to New York. As soon as I, I got to go to New York. So after the riots, I left. How did you afford a plane ticket to get here? I was working. You were working. I've always worked. I've always worked. That's incredible. I've worked so much. And then my mom actually got her shit together and started doing casting in L.A. Like, she, as an actor, she started a business with another actor called Actors Casting Actors. And they started doing a little bit of casting for commercials. And so I was homeless at the time. I was living out of my car before I moved to New York. And I asked her if I could work with her. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, I would love it. Because I'm way more pulled together than my mom is. So even though I was living out of my car, <laughs> I came to her rescue in her little business. So she trained me. I got some great training on camera. And, like, I learned how the business kind of went from behind the scenes. Fascinating. So it was really, it saved, that part saved me physically. And I knew, wait, I have this skill now. I can kind of go anywhere with this skill. They don't want a high school diploma. They don't need me to go to college. This is something I can do. I'm 18 years old. I can get the fuck out of here, and I can go to New York, and I can do this. So I did. I came out here, and I started working on camera for people um, in casting. And you just met them? I got referrals from Los Angeles people that I had worked for. And I had worked for a whole bunch of people in Los Angeles because I was like this funky little girl who would show up. And I'm a really hard worker. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, like, so talented. So I I can see, like, once they met you, there's no, you know what I mean? There's no, of course, they're going to hire you. But, like, just even getting in the door, I'm so impressed that you were able to do all these things at such a young age. It uh, It was a challenge, but it wasn't any more of a challenge than living on my own than having to work full time as a kid, than having, than losing really the the, par- the parental p- 
people. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. All the stuff that I experienced before, like, the real life kicked in yeah. had been so much more severe. So this kind of felt like, oh, nothing. this is nothing. Yeah. So when I came to New York, though, I realized you could get heroin in the street. Oh, my God. That kind of fucked me up. So you were, you were addicted <laughs> so to I went into <laughs> I was like, shit. And I was still running camera here and there for people and, like, literally having to leave the interview. You know, I'm, I'm running the camera. I'm auditioning an actor. And I go, excuse me one second, run to the bathroom and throw up because I'm fucking on dope. So that was a job that I held at the same time I was going to cop dope for people who were scared to go to the Lower East Side. You know, you would go for people, so you were running. Yeah, you're yeah. a runner. Is yeah. that what it's called? Sure. No, I mean, I didn't really carry called. it in my belly or anything. You okay. know, I didn't swallow balloons or anything. <laughs> but yeah, but what? yeah, I would go and cop for people. Because mm-hmm. people were scared. It was scary in the Lower East Side when I first moved out here. It was ninety two, ninety three. It was fucking scary. There were body bags being pulled out of lots and. There was no white people down below. You didn't go below Houston. You didn't go south of Houston. There was nothing down there. It was disgusting. And it was all just heroin. And I thought, this is the fucking best thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I just came from gangland USA in L.A. And then I'm in the Lower East Side. I'm like, this is the shit. All these hot Puerto Rican dudes like, what's up, girl? What's up? And I'm like, hey, what's up? Hell yeah, let's do this. So I was getting heroin for people, and then I had to stop the casting because that just got in the way. I was just too sick. I was too drugged out. I had to stop it. And And then how did you get better? Well, I'll tell you what. Kind of the thing that really got me from behind the camera to in front of the camera was the fact that every time I directed someone in a session, in an audition, they would say to me, you're so funny. You should totally do this. Yeah. So it got me resentful really quickly in a very young age. And I thought, all right, well, I have to do this now. Now I have to do this. So when I was in the... I think that's a really important thing, though, of like yeah. when you take a job outside of what you're really trying to do, but you're still in the field and how hard that can be. I didn't even know because I yeah, swore heading, yeah. I didn't want to be an actor, Katie. I mean, I swore from my mom being on welfare and what a chaotic life we lived. I was like, hell no, I'll be a lawyer or something. And then I got old enough, I realized you have to go to school and shit. So I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll just run this camera. Um, but then I got upset at the people. So I went and I, but still doing heroin, I took a comedy class and I got to perform like as the graduation. Where was the class? Uh, it was like a Steve Rosenthal. I'm sure he okay. still does it, the yeah. guy. But we performed at Caroline's was like the performance yeah. or whatever. And a couple of my aunts came out, you know, to support. And From Queens? Well, they live all over now. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, my, my New York Jew aunts. And they came out and they were like, you're hilarious, you know. And, and it was like the best buzz. And I, I always sound like a Jesus freak when I say this. I always say this. It saved me from the heroin, the comedy high that I got from yes. telling my story, from being on that stage and feeling that energy from the people, you know, listening, engaging, being able to do characters and retell the shit that I had been through. Oh, my God. It was like, ah, like the light came through. Well, because it's fascinating because you're like probably one of the craziest people I know in terms of like what you're doing to your body yes. and at the same time like have such a rational perspective it's just like it doesn't seem the, right the disconnect <laughs> yeah it doesn't seem between right between what you're putting yourself through and then your insight into what is going on but 
with the people around you as well as yourself. Like you have both self-awareness and an awareness of what's going on in the world. And then at the same time, you're like, I think I'm gonna like ride on my roller skates down to Lower East Side where they have body bags and yeah. uh, drop off some heroin and pick some up. Yeah. And funny that you bring up the, the roller skating because that was another job that I got when I first moved here was I roller skated and delivered pot for a company that called themselves Dr. Schmenge, which I think is hysterical. What is Dr. Schmenge? I don't know. It was just like a name that they came up with, a doctor's name for the office. It was a bunch of Jewish guys, you know, with dreadlocks. I mean, it was hysterical. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me right now? It was fucking hysterical. But it was before Giuliani, so it was still kind of safe to deal weed. And I was just on my roller skates, and that's how I got to know the city. Plus, I could, I could still do the heroin when I was doing that job. It wasn't like the casting where I had to be more kind of corporate, you know, and be, like, pulled together. I could be on my roller skates all day. I could be in some apartment somewhere where I just sold somebody some weed and I could, you know, do a little heroin how in How do you bathroom. know how to price yourself when you're selling weed? And the, like, how do It you was know a company to... that I worked for. They okay. told us what, how much everything was. Okay. Yeah. It was very, it was very structured, uh, the pot sales. That doesn't surprise me, though. Like, that's what part of the reason I love... Um, the wire. Yes. Is that you see that all of these people would be uh, brilliant on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very good businessmen. All the guys yeah. I worked for amazing businessmen and some of them did very well for themselves and are doing very well and they're out of that business for years but they've they invested well and they are business guys you know I mean you really see that it shows that very well that you know what I mean had they been born into different circumstances they would be doing the same thing but just with you know on Wall Street yeah I mean they're very savvy I believe so I totally believe so so wait okay so then you take this comedy class and you perform at Caroline's and you just like knock it out of the park kill it Amazing. It felt, like I said, it felt better than anything that I'd ever done. What year was this? Oh, it was in the 90s, 94 maybe? Yeah, 94. And so then you were just hooked. Then I was hooked, and then I thought, well, this is what I want to do, but I wasn't off heroin yet. So what happened was I was still getting high, and I remember going to do a show at Boston Comedy Club when that was still there. Yes! I used to perform there. Oh, God. oh God. It was a great shithole of a club, but it was a great club. But it was but, a shithole, but it was I loved it a lot. That was like a huge step for me, I feel like when I, it's like more so than when I would get spots at Stand Up New York and Gotham and I would think I'm getting in, but I'm not really like I felt like Boston like was a club that you really like worked at. Like the way that the these guys had the cellar. Yes. I felt like yeah. this this legitimacy being there. I don't I, like It's like a community. It was like a community. Yeah, and that's lacking so yeah. much. You know, yeah. in the last bunch of years, there's no real community to go to. Everything's so clicked off now. Yes. Which is unfortunate. You know? And I feel like, you know, when I'd go in for a spot at Santa New York, or go, I would just go in and out. Yeah. And that there was, yeah. At Boston, that. there was a family feeling. Like, you wanted to hang out. You yes. wanted to come. Even the nights you weren't working there. Totally. Go and hang out there. That's how I felt, too. And I feel like it got even deeper when I got yelled at. Uh, Rod Reyes, who I believe is not... Anymore? I don't want to say it, but uh, anyway, he was emceeing the show that I did, and I was nodding off on stage. I was literally having a moment, like a drug moment, and he pulled me off stage, and he yelled at me, and he yelled at me in the corner, and he yelled at me for a good long time, and he told me, you know, how dare you waste our time, the audience's time, your own time. You want to do drugs, get the fuck out of here and go do your drugs, but you can't, don't come in here with that shit. And it really, it got me so freaked out. Because no one had ever told me anything like that. No one had ever spoken to me like that in my life. 
you know, I didn't have a rule ever. You know, I never was told I was wrong or did anything bad, except by like schools. And my parents told me I didn't have to listen to schools. So now here's this guy who doing exactly what I want to do, and he's telling me I fucked up. I fucked up bad. So I kind of am in a weird place for a little while, but I found a theater called Surf Reality. Yes. Oh, it's so famous. <laughs> Want to explain it a little bit to people? because? Well, it was, um, I got to say, it was one of the first downtown, it was like an ABC No Rio, if you want to get really into the 80s kind of punk w- weirdness theater. Um, Surf Reality was a theater. But this is in the 90s. In the 90s. Yeah. That came to be because this couple, this funky couple, Rob and Jen, decided that they wanted to open their doors to the alternative scene that the, the kids who were not doing stand-up comedy in the 90s, for the people that were doing something alternative to stand-up. And I don't mean what's happening now. You mean like Mangina? The, yeah. Can Mangina, you describe what he is? LaRocco. To, to describe who these characters are. Okay, well, LaRocco, for instance, is like a four-foot-six girl who I've seen a few different times at Surf Reality. Once I saw her paint with her menstrual blood. Once I saw her pull an onion out of her crotch, her, her, her coos, her vagina. And not a chive, like a bulbous white onion, <laughs> very large. Um, so she was there. Face Boy, had, who's kind of a minor celebrity, I guess, in the New York scene. Face Boy's open mic was a, was a Sunday night at Surf Reality that was like a scene. I mean, it was a scene. Everybody showed up there who didn't do straight stand-up comedy, who, who didn't play the clubs. Because all there was in the 90s, really, in the early 90s yes. for comedy, was either the comedy club yeah. or some weird fucked up theater called Surf Reality. Yes. And that was it. And literally, Surf Reality was in the places where I got my heroin. So it was scary still. It was dark down there. It was, there was a bordello, I believe, below the theater where people would call, you know, buzz to the theater. Where are the girls? You know, like, no, this is the theater. And we would try to keep it safe. And But it, um, a guy named Rick Shapiro. Yes. 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 He is my theater. savior. My savior named Rick. A lot of people would find this very uh, hard to believe because you one look at Rick and you think, Jesus Christ, he might still be on drugs. But he I was, love I love him so much, and I, I, he's the reason I'm here. He's really the reason I'm here. I, I have nothing else to, to... What happened specifically? He saw me um, waitressing. I was waitressing at the comic strip when I was trying to get off heroin, and I, I thought that I wanted to do comedy because I had done that class. So I was waitressing at the comic strip, and Rick Shapiro would stop me all the time and go, Hey! Hey, what's up, comic? And I'd say, no, I'd shake my head and go, no, dude, I'm a waitress. And he'd go, yeah, right. And then he'd do like a voice to me. Then I'd do a voice back to him. Then he threatened to bring me down to the surf reality theater and put me in his show. And he did. And I, and I forget it. I was addicted. I, he was a sober person who brought me to surf reality, put me in his show and told me, if you want to continue in the show, you got to come with me to the AA. You got to come with me to the rooms. And I go to NA and AA and all this shit. So I got clean and sober with Rick Shapiro, the help of Rick Shapiro, my savior. And I got very into the theater scene and into the into comedy at Surf Reality. It's amazing. Story. It's amazing. I mean, the guy, I just went to his wedding. Rick just got married. Shout out to Rick and, and his beautiful wife, Tracy. And they, uh, he's just an amazing man, what he's been through also. We have a lot of the same story. So 
it was great when he cast me in his one person show when he said, Oh no, I'm casting people. I said, But it's a one person show. <laughs> and he goes, Yeah, but I'm casting all the voices in my head. I said, Well, all right, cool, let's do this, man. So it was really fun. Amazing. It was really, really fun. So and I got now, to do that. Now you in addition to stand up and storytelling, you also act. Yes. I finally got into it, even though I swore I'd never do it. Mom, I'm out, mama. You were yeah. recently in this Phil Spector movie. Yeah, on very HBO, exciting. Which people can still exciting. actually see on HBO if you have HBO Go or just steal someone's password or borrow someone's password. Yeah, and it's actually up for an Emmy right now. So, so it's exciting. really exciting because people are going to be watching it more. And I'm the chick, uh, Jenny O'Brien, who tests the gun. So I have a gun in my mouth. It's very, very scary. It's so scary that I have a good story for you. On the first take, now David Mamet was the writer and the director. Wow. So it was very exciting to meet David Mamet. And he came up to me uh, first thing in the morning. He introduced himself and he said, hello, my name's David and I'll be your director today. And I thought, oh, he's so cute. He was like kind of just fun and playful. Anyhow, we get to my scene. For a Republican, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Because you hear so much fucking shit, and I know he's written all this bullshit stuff I don't really agree with, but yet he was a cheerful, playful man. He's also brilliant. I know. And I I enjoy his writing and his directing. (laughs) I really, really do. So so we go to shoot the first take, and it's like I said, it's a very frightening scene. I have this gun in my mouth. Someone screams. It looks like I've been hurt. And he yells, cut! And he runs out from behind the camera. And he goes, Jess, Jess, are you okay? And I said, yeah, man. And he goes, wait, were you just acting? And I go, yeah, bro. And he goes, all right. And he did like a George Jefferson walk back to the camera. (laughs) It was so awesome. (laughs) It was like my favorite thing ever. I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to tell that story forever, bro, forever. (laughs) It's that mammoth story and David Lee Roth story when I was cocktail waitressing for a second and a half. David Lee Roth came into where I was at, Lower East Side, this place, Lansky Lounge, that no longer, I don't think it's there anymore, but. I remember Lansky Lounge. Do you remember Lansky Lounge? It was like a a scary speakeasy where you could, it was like, if you could talk to the big Puerto Rican guy in the three-piece suit, you could get in, you know? Like, other than that, you're fucking scared. David Lee Roth shows up, and I, and he's at my table, so I go over, hi, can I take your order? He goes, may I please have a double shot of Jack Daniels, please? And I started laughing, and I said, oh my God, you're so polite. And this, I'll never forget what he said. He goes, I always thought manners were better than morals. Fuck yes. Diamond so Dave. interesting. I'll never forget it. These are the things that stay with me. Oh, how can they not? How can they not? <laughs> What's the name of your podcast? Uh, my podcast is called After Black. And can you describe it for our listeners? Oh, boy. I think you were a typecast in it. I was, actually. It's uh, Ratchet. It's the ratchetest show you'll ever hear. Uh, what Ratchet. does that mean? It's something that the kids are saying, Katie. Okay. Um, it's, um, it means, uh, like, the worst shit that you could possibly say. I mean, we talk a lot about, um, well, I use real news stories that get sent in by the listeners. Uh, but uh, most of the news stories are just sickening tales of, you know, bestiality and uh, people having sex in McDonald's bathrooms or, the, you know, like, it's just yeah. Does this feel like you're exposing yourself to more trauma or, or do you feel like, oh, it's like, I guess my situation wasn't that bad. Like, I do find the latter to be true most of the time. Like, I don't, you know. That helps put ever, it in perspective. Yeah. Like, no one ever tried to fuck my cat, you know, or I wasn't pimped out to, like, the neighbor's horse. I mean, there are some stories out there, especially in Florida. God bless you, Florida. Whew. So sorry. 
Uh, so, yeah, so I talk a lot about that. I also do, you know, like, because it's a weekly show, so I do, like, a, my week. I give you a little preview of what, what my week was like. Always a bunch of crazy shit. I talk a lot about sex, a lot about, you know, because we have all this, all these issues coming up the last couple of years with women's health and that kind of stuff. It makes me crazy. So I'm very pro-choice, and I'm very pro-condoms, and I'm very pro conversation about birth control and say, and sex and so I feel like women are supposed to be very sex, uh, sexy these days but we're not allowed to be sexual and I have, a, I have a real issue with that fascinating I find that the women that are doing very well whether it be on television or in comedy or yeah. uh, even in music they tend to lean towards victim sexually I don't, I don't like that. Do you have any examples? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I find that Amy Schumer is an example of someone who is often the victim in a lot of her comedy and a lot of her sketches even on her show. I was so delighted to know that she had gotten a show, and I thought, great, this will be some vehicle for a strong comedian woman. And then I watched, and I was so disappointed. It's the same way I feel about Girl Code. I feel like we could; these are venues that we could use for really great ideas and strong, you know, thoughts on sex and sexuality yes. and empowerment. Yes. And yet, nah, that doesn't really, you know. It's Everybody so- tells me it doesn't sell, and I'm like, what about Oprah? You know, I have an issue with. They say, oh, empowerment for women doesn't sell. And you're like, yes, it, is. it does it, I think it does. You know, it's so interesting that you said that also because the rape jokes became such a big Ugh. thing. And mm-hmm. I can always tell when someone has actually been raped or has any experience with rape mm-hmm. and when they don't. Because, mm-hmm. like, the idea that you make the person who is raped the butt of the joke, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whether you're male or female, is always so odd to me. I'm like, wow. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, can you at least know what your punchline is before you use it? Right. Now, I got in trouble um, on my show hmm. for something like that. And I'll, I'll tell you what it was. It was a, a news story that we got in about a man in his 20s who had been picked up by a van that was filled with women um, who were five foot three to five foot six, 170 to 210 pounds, you know, five women in a van. This must have been a huge van. Okay. They already, it's already you're like tittering a little bit on this, the setup. <laughs> this and you're like, huge... what the fuck happened in this van? What, is, what, what are they about van. to tell us? <laughs> exactly. So they pick up this guy and they rape him. Okay. Now, here's what I say after my co-host gives us the story. I go, huh, what did he do afterwards? And the guy goes, well, and my co-host says, well, he uh, reported it, you know. After a bit, he reported it. I said, huh, after a bit. Why, because he had to call a few friends beforehand and tell them, hey, you'll you'll never guess what happened to me tonight. And I thought that was so funny because what I'm doing is I'm making fun of a guy. I'm not making fun of the rape and the violence, you know, whatever happened that. I'm making fun of of men in general. And that's what people got so upset with me. Male culture. Just, exactly. Just stop making fun. The guy was hurt. I go, no, no, I'm not making fun of the guy being hurt. I'm making fun of men in general having this idea that no matter what happens to them sexually, it's something to brag about. Yeah. Like, the guys that fuck the animals, the guys that fuck the... You know, and I talk a lot on our show about inappropriate sex. Yes. And I thought, come on, you people, don't, don't get sensitive on me now. 
because I'm actually taking a man's psyche. And, and, and you're, and you're subversively looking at it is right. what you're saying. So I'm trying to go deeper than what, you know, they're saying. So that was the one time that I got like in a little bit of trouble. Not, not terrible. It didn't shut me off or anything. But. Well, but it's also good because I, I, you know, it is such a difficult subject that I could easily like ridicule someone else when they're really saying something very subversive and not know it. Do you know what I mean? Like it is like that. So, so I like that you're actually. It's just spurring more conversation. Which I, <laughs> I want to like, talk about it a lot. Which, I want to talk about it. And it needs it. to be talked about. And it's mm-hmm. it's just especially because right now there's this like renaissance of women in television. We started in stand up. It was so hard. It was yeah. so hard as a woman. And I just like mm-hmm. I look at Jenny Slate and Amy Schumer, and I'm so happy that they're thriving. Yes. And I also know that they came right after that period. Yep. And I like envy that there's this confidence there because I didn't go through. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were told I was beaten down kind yes. of culture. I had Joy Behar on the show and she was great because she's able to talk about don't look at the other woman on the bill. Look at those men and mm-hmm. go after those 15 spots and not the one other, you know. But she's totally mm-hmm. candid about how hard it was and how hard it is. Yeah. And I, the younger women now, who I love, Alana Glazer um, and Abby Jacobson have a show on Comedy Central, Broad City. Like, yes. I love it, but I really do envy their confidence because they didn't have anything beaten out of them. Mm-mm. They didn't have to go through that and get rid of it. And they weren't told, you know, I was, I was sat down with a few different club owners um, over my time doing stand-up and told, you cannot talk about that. You cannot talk. When I first started, I did the Urban Rooms when I first started doing stand-up. And I got onto Def Jam within a year of doing stand-up. And I didn't mean to. It's just what I was talking about. The White Rooms were telling me, you cannot talk about this. And now it's so funny because it's almost, God, it's, you know, it's coming on 17 years or whatever that I did it. And it seems like that was that now is so hacky. What I was doing then, like, this is how a white girl fights, you know, this is how a black girl fights, this is how a Puerto Rican girl fights. But at the time, that was really subversive. But it was yeah. like, whoa, don't wait, you're a white lady, you can't go out there and do a Puerto Rican accent, you can't go out there and make a black guy accent, you know, because I would go on stage and be like, what's up? <laughs> you know, and I did like a black male character for the first two, three minutes of my set, and white audiences would go completely whiter and shut the fuck up and black audiences would be like oh hell no who the fuck is this crazy bitch and I love her let's see her what she got because I'm telling stories that I know I'm doing characters that I came they're up all true with. Yeah. yeah so a lot of times for me black audience still to this day much better for me much friendlier much more open I do some race stuff right now that I love that white audiences get freaked out like I have this one joke Katie I said who do you think's more nervous I'll ask a, a woman a white lady in the audience I'll say who do you think's more nervous walking towards each other on the street a black guy walking towards a white girl or a white girl walking towards a black guy and everybody gets real nervous I go oh it's the black guy for sure <laughs> you know why because we could say anything and white people, it's as if I've hurt their mothers. <gasps> how dare you? No. How dare you, you fucking assholes? How dare what has happened in our history of America? And people, oh, it's a black guy. It was a black guy. When? With who? Whose kids were drowned? You know what I mean? Like these fucking stories that we're given all the time about the men. The, a black guy, Susan Smith is the, the woman who drowned her own kids instead okay. of black I was guy like, who carjacked. Got drowned? Her. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> like, I'm on the sidewalk. Where's there a pool? There's so many things. <laughs> I'm wrong. 
going on. I'm very upset. I but, know we're on an island in New York, but I don't know where. <laughs> <laughs> Racially, I get very upset now. It's the same thing with sex, though. And now I, I feel the same way you do when I see women on, on TV and even shows like Two Broke Girls who, uh, you know, I know some of the writers. I think it's great that everybody's I love, working. Yeah. I think it's wonderful. But they say stuff that I am like, uh, uh, wow. They can say that on Channel 2 and, or CBS. And I... I couldn't say that for 10 years. Yes. Yeah. They, you and, know, not, and not 10 years in the 1920s. No. You mean in the, in 90s. the last. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it, that's, that's the part. Yeah. And, and the confidence, I think, of just never having failed and, and had to struggle. But that, yeah. that's um, I, like one of, your, one of your many beautiful characteristics is that you're so strong. Thank you. And I think you're just born this way. Thing. You were just born talented and like had to go through a lot of shit, but you know, like, you're here. <laughs> well, hopefully, you know things will turn around. I mean, things have been great. They I have just, turned I, around last again and years, again. Uh, yeah, the last few years have been wonderful for me with all the acting, and um, I just starred in an independent film. It just wrapped last a couple weeks ago, and that was great. And so, hopefully, that'll get into some festivals and stuff. What's that film called? I do a lot of crying in that film. Uh, it's called Cigarette Soup. It's okay. About, uh, a journalist kid who goes to war to um, interview a bunch of troops, and he ends up getting killed. And wow. it's my kid. So most of the movie is me at the at the FBI agent or at the FBI office watching the found footage of my son and the troops and stuff. So it's like that back and forth movie where you're like you're in the action, and then you pull back and you see me watching the action. So it's nice. very intense. Yes. Yeah. But you're so good at at uh, doing real. Uh, drama. Thanks, man. Um, Jessica, this was so fun. When 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 should we look for the book? I have fun. Oh my gosh. Well, I told my agent I'm turning it in. So uh, <laughs> next couple few months, hopefully there'll be a big announcement. Okay, good. People yeah. can go to your website. Yeah, thejesswood.com. Thejesswood.com. Please go there. Please check out her stuff, and um, please come back when it's out. Katie, I had so much fun. This was such a pleasure I and a privilege. I love talking to you. Oh, I could do this for hours, and I, um, you will be getting your award <laughs> in the mail. You know, I usually get fired, so this is really exciting. Yay! <laughs> I'm so happy. Thank you for turning it all around. <laughs> you, are, you, are, you earn more than an employee of the month award, but this is all I can give you. So thank you so, so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Employee of the Month show. Thank you to Ian Mazoff, Joel Arnold, and Gordon Smith, who are the phenomenal editors at the Employee of the Month show and edit these podcasts together. Thanks to all of you for listening. Do go to the employeeofthemonthshow.com's website where you can find out about future live tapings and other ways to get involved. And that's it. I hope you're out there chasing your dreams or um, self-medicating about how they're not working out for right now and then going back to chasing them and then chasing that chaser with a really good chaser. I'll talk to you soon. I'm Katie Lazarus. Bye. 